continue on a two-part series of evolution versus creation. We are looking at an old earth versus young earth, a biblical account of creation versus science and the theory of evolution. And what we need to understand, and a lot of times I'll get real passionate up here, so I'll sound kind of angry. And I'm just really passionate. And there's some things as Christians we need to be angry about. We need to be angry about how the very core of our belief system, the very first two books of our Bible is under fierce assault and attack. The very idea of God creating the heavens and the earth and evolution being shoved down the throats of our kids makes me angry. It's like Jesus who went into the temple and was angry at the dishonesty that was happening. Gets me passionate, gets me fired up because this is being shoved down our kids' throats all over the world as truth and fact when in reality it's not. We saw last week all the evidences of a young earth versus an old earth. Undisputable evidences. And so what I asked you to do is to write down some of your questions. Man, I got a big stack. I love it. Great questions too. And so this morning all I want to do is just kind of go through the questions of evolution versus creation. This is what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy or 1 Timothy 6.20. Paul says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care, the word of God, the message. He says, turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called science, knowledge, which some have professed and in doing so have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. And see, what I want to do as your pastor, as your shepherd, as someone who loves you deeply, is to equip you to be able to sit down with teachers, be able to sit down with people at work, be able to sit down with those who do not hold to a literal six-day creation, seventh-day rest, or God creating everything just like the Bible says. I want to be able to lovingly, you, lovingly equip you to be able to defend your faith because that's what Peter says. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And so what we did is we put together a packet. You can get it at the information table of all the stuff I gave you last week. It's got a bibliography, all the sources, so you're not just taking my word for it. Websites. Man, there's so much information there that you can sit down and look at it, and you'll have a great defense for your faith. Because again, this is huge. This is the very foundation of our faith. This is Genesis 1 and 2. Remember that picture I showed you last week of the two castles, and they're firing at our very foundation, and we're not even touching theirs? And we need to take their foundation of evolution completely out. Because the reason they're holding on to that is because they don't want to submit themselves to a holy God. And the scripture's real clear. You have to either accept it or reject it. And what happened before 19 or before 1859, nobody really had a problem with this Bible being truthful as far as how creation came to be, how old the earth is. And in 1859, with his book, The Origin of the Species, Darwin confiscated the subject of creation out of the theological realm, and he tried to hijack it and put it in the realm of science and knowledge. And he did a heck of a job. And we've got to come to the point as Christians to the fact that science makes no contribution 
to creation whatsoever or the understanding of it. Science makes no contribution to the understanding of creation whatsoever. And so many times we want to go to science and knowledge and try to plug it into creation. You can't do it. The reason that you can't do it is because you cannot explain creation through scientific means or methods. That creation was not a natural event or a series of them. That creation was a series of supernatural, unexplainable, miraculous events. And science works in the realm of natural laws. God operates outside the laws of nature. That's what a miracle is. He comes in to a set creation of natural laws, a still pond, and he causes a ripple. He comes in supernaturally. That's why you can't explain creation through naturalistic means or methods. It's a supernatural event. Even Darwin, I'm going to read you something, even Darwin himself dispelled his theory of evolution. And so again, if you don't buy into Genesis 1 and 2, at what point do you buy in of this word? You and I do not have the luxury of changing the word. We either accept it or reject it. We either submit to what it says or we don't. And sometimes it's hard because we've been taught for so many years that evolution is a fact and the earth is 4.6 billion years that it's ingrained in a lot of us. And I remember when I first started studying this, I felt like an idiot. And I don't mean to try to make you feel stupid. I felt stupid, especially when I started looking at all the facts. The problem is we're not stupid, we're just without the facts because they won't present them. It's so one-sided. And so what we did last week is we presented you all the facts of a young earth versus an old earth. If you've got a very young earth, and the Bible's real clear, that from Adam to Christ is only 4,000 years roughly. I've got the chart for you in that packet. But the Bible gives you precise dates from Adam to Christ, about 4,100 and something years. And so from Christ or from Adam till now is about 6,000 years old. And the evidence that we have out there backs up the biblical account. That's the beauty of it. The more discoveries that science makes, the more it validates the Bible. But again, science cannot tell you how God created it. All they can do is observe how it operates and works. And by observing how it operates and works, it gives you no hint of how it was created. I'll give you an example. If you lived in Jesus' time and you saw him raise Lazarus from the dead, in other words, Lazarus came out of the tomb and they took off all of his burial clothes, all you could do is walk up to him and talk to him, right? You could observe him, you could walk with him, you could touch him. You could say, how do you feel? What was it like when you were dead for four days? And you could ask him all these questions, but you asking him all those questions and you walking with him will give you no idea of what Jesus did to him when he was in the tomb to raise him from the dead. You follow me? The same thing with creation. How about when he fed the multitude? You can sit down and talk to somebody who ate that food. You could say, how did it taste? Did it taste like real food? Was it fake? Did it fill you up? Did it make your stomach upset? How are you doing? Did you sleep okay that night? You know what I mean? You could ask them all kinds of questions. But by asking him those questions, you get no information whatsoever of how Jesus miraculously brought forth 
out of five loaves and a couple of fishes, enough food to feed over 12,000 people. It's the same thing with creation. The only way we can understand what happened when God created it is to believe the eyewitness account of God Almighty in which he simply put down in the first two chapters of Genesis. Amen? And so what I want to do is I just want to hit these questions, great questions. And if you've got more, write them down or call me. My phone number is on, I tell you this just about every week, my phone number is on the back of that bulletin. I love to sit down and grab some coffee with you and just talk about these things. Because again, I don't want you to be without the facts. I'll give you the facts the best I can of what's out there. You might agree with them, you might not agree with them, that's okay. But you formulate your opinion from facts and truth and not how you feel. Okay? Please. First question, how do you debate an old earth versus a new earth, or anything in the Bible for that matter, to people who don't believe the Bible to be truth? Great question. The first thing I do when I sit down with somebody, no matter what the issue is, if it's abortion, if it's euthanasianism, if it's miracle signs and wonders, if it's creation versus evolution, the first thing we have to establish, do you believe that this Bible is the authoritative word of God? That it's plenary, it's full, it's lacking in nothing, and it's relevant for yesterday, today, tomorrow, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. He's the living word. Do you believe that this Bible is the final say-so in all matters? If you and I can agree on that, we're good. If we can't agree with that, there's no reason to go any further into discussion, right? Because now there's no absolutes. It's relative. It's how you feel and how this person feels. There must be a means. There must be a standard. God said in Amos 7, 8 that he has dropped the plumb line. And everything must hold to it. So if we can agree with that, we're good. If we can't, there's no reason to even sit and discuss. It's like pearls before a swine. But if we hold to this Bible, see, that's the beauty of it. Because it doesn't matter what I say or what I feel or what you say or what you feel. It's what God's word says. And boy, then we can explore. Then we can dig and pull out the truth. Okay? Question goes on. says, this week I got into debate with a co-worker about creation. Six days, she says, I was putting limitations on God to say that scientific facts point to a literal six days that he can make anything happen in millions of years if he wanted to. Absolutely. Listen, I'm not, I'm not limiting God. We're not limiting God by saying God created the earth in six days and then rested on the seventh 6,000 years ago. We're not putting limitations on God. God could have brought about the creation any way he wanted to, Right? Didn't need to ask me. He didn't need my advice or my instruction or any else's. He could have brought it about any way he wanted. He could have done it in a millisecond. He could have done it over six billion years. He could have done it over 600 million years. If God wanted to, he could put wings on a pig and make it fly. Right? But he didn't. How do I know? I have a Bible. He told me how he did it. In very simple, understandable languages. There was morning, there was evening, the first day. 24-hour period. There was evening, there was morning, the second day. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, Bernard, you put God in a box. No, I put him in a book. I put him in a book because he does. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, don't go beyond what's written. Because God's not the author of confusion. God doesn't want us down here trying to 
figure things out to a point where we're all so confused we don't know what to do. He's very clear on things. Very clear on things on how to live life in godliness. Question two. If the earth is 6,000 years old and universe must be two. Genesis 1.14, God created it all at the same time. How could light from a distant star be visible on earth when the star has burned out? This is a great question. I love it. How can we have a star that's burned out and the light is in transit and we know how far the star is and we know how fast light travels and it's going to take X amount of years, light years from to get to that point to this point. It could be millions or billions of years. How do we reconcile that is a great question. I'll take you to scripture. Isaiah 40 verse 22. It says that God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. Now watch this. It says that God stretches out the heavens like a canopy and he spreads them out like a tent to live in. And the Hebrew word stretch means to pull apart to lengthen. And so it's a great verse to answer this question because let's say God created the universe. Now they're looking at the Big Bang where they believe everything happened in a localized area and it's just expanding out. Okay. Say God created the light and he created the stars and the moons and then he stretched out the heavens. That would explain why you've got light in transit coming to this planet and the earth and the universe can only be 6,000 years. Love it. He also says the same thing in Zechariah 12.1 and Job 26.7, that he stretches out the heavens. Okay? What is global warming? Why does it seem that each summer the temperatures are getting hotter? Global warming is the ozone layer is breaking down. The temperature of the planet is heating up. Uh, Al Gore with his carbon credits, which here's a fun fact for you. I think about 10 years ago, he's worth 2 million. Now he's worth about 22 million all because of this carbon footprint stuff. Hebrews chapter one says that the planet's gonna wear out. Okay, like a garment it's gonna wear out, like a robe it will be changed, but you and I are, are, that his days will remain the same and they'll never end. That you and I are on a planet that is wearing out. It's that simple, it's not global warming, it's Jesus coming, the planet is running out. And you and I cannot preserve this planet. There is a specific day in which the elements are going to melt in the heat and the heavens are going to disappear in a roar. That day, Peter says. Now, we're to be good stewards of the planet that God has given us, but we can't do things to extend the life of this planet. There's a set day in which God will change it out. How do I know that? I've got a Bible. I've got his revelation to me. Uh, here's one. Where do uh, We are so trained to think of birth and death, so how did God come about? Is he spirit? not a living organism. Can we talk about this? With God, there's no time. In Genesis 1, remember, everything known to man exists in one of five categories, time, force, action, space, or matter. Very first verse in your Bible, in the beginning time, God, force, created, that's action, the heavens, that's uh, space, and the earth, that's matter. That God literally created time, and you and I as a finite being who can only understand linear things, a beginning and an end, cannot fathom something that has no beginning or end because he's outside of it and he created time. I mean, that's the best I can do. I mean, I have a finite mind. 
But it says God had no beginning or no end. He's the Alpha, the Omega. He was and is and is to come, book of Revelation. So he's outside that time. Okay, I had a lot of questions about Adam and Eve. How long were they in the garden before they got thrown out because of sin? Probably not very long. You had a perfect man and a perfect woman who were consummating the marriage and they weren't pregnant yet. And so I believe that the temptation and sin and the expulsion of the garden probably happened within days of after they were created. Don't know for sure. <clears throat> then I've got questions on uh, where did Cain get his wife? How did people populate? Were they marrying their brothers and their sisters? Acts 17.24. Acts 17.24 says that all the nations of the earth, all the people of the earth came from one man, one woman. Okay? Even the population growth experts will validate that. And they'll validate it to the point where it's impossible for us to be over 6,000 years old because the population would be unimaginable. Okay, I think it's 10 to the 120th power or something like that. Okay, where did Cain get his wife? Again, had to be one of his sisters, cousins. I mean, that's how God did it. And the reason he did it that way is because, again, the Bible says from one man, one woman, they filled the earth. The reason it could be done that way is because the corruption of man's genes in his body had not really come to fruition because sin entered into the world into a perfect body and that sin took a while for it to take its effects on the body. So far so good? Best I can come up with. Okay? I'll leave it there. Uh, let me see what else we got. All right, here's a good one. The Bible talks about creation. Uh, is the Hebrew world for world and earth our planet different? If it, is there different words? Is there different meanings? The word world, when you see it in your Bible, means the peoples of the earth. It's the inhabitants. When you see the word earth, cosmos, it means the, the regions, the countries, the land itself, the dirt. So world, it's the people. Earth is the dirt. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the physical, literal creation. Uh, for God so loved the world, that's the peoples of the world, that he not only died for our sins, but for the sins of the world, that's the peoples, okay? So earth, whenever you see the word earth, it's the physical creation. World, it's the humans on it. Well, every creature that God created be in heaven. I hate to say this. According to, according to the Bible, Rin, Tin, Tin, and Lassie will not be in heaven. I'm sorry. Okay? It says in Ecclesiastes that the spirit of the man when he dies goes upward and the spirit of the animal goes into the ground. However, the Bible does say that God is going to recreate all the animal life that was on the planet in the millennial period. When you go to Isaiah, it says that the lion and the calf will lay together. The lamb will be there. You've got the child who play by the viper's nest and not be bit. I believe God will recreate the dinosaurs. They'll be there. Okay? I believe that. Don't tell Caleb anything different because he thinks he's going to ride a T-Rex. Okay? He thinks he's going to be riding dinosaurs. So that's the best I got as far as that goes. And we'll talk about dinosaurs here in a minute because most of the questions I got 
and I love you guys, or I'm the dinosaurs. What about the dinosaurs? What about the ice age? Where did the dinosaurs exist as far as man goes? When did God create them? Were they on the ark? Phenomenal questions. Here's one question. Can you make a copy of the anvil poem that I read? Yeah, we're going to put it in the T News this week. That poem about God's word like being the anvil and the skeptics have beat upon it for years. We'll put that in the T News for you, okay? Here's one. If Revelation is interpreted symbolically, why can't Genesis be done the same way? Great question. When you go to the book of Revelation, if you've ever read it, how many of you tried to read the book of Revelation? It's intense, isn't it? There's all kinds of weird stuff going on. Beasts with ten horns and eyes and heads and crowns, and you're going, those are, some, those are symbols with literal meanings that we can go back to the Old Testament, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah, and interpret them because God has interpreted them for us. And they're written in symbolic language to get a message to a Jewish church, a primarily Jewish church at the beginning of the church to give them the hope and the certainty of things to come, just like it was given in the prophets. But when you go to the book of Genesis, there's no symbols there. It's literal planets, literal earth, and animals that are named, and man and woman and marriage. So it's not symbolic language, especially when you get to the word yom, which is day. That the word day can either mean a 24-hour period or an epoch of time or a specific time period or an age. But God makes it real clear, especially when you go to Exodus 19, where Moses said God made the world in six days with a seventh-day rest. So it's a great question, but boy, there's a big difference from Revelation and Genesis. I mean, it's known things that are going on at the planet at that time, okay? How about this? Would it be possible to offer parents classes to teach them the facts about a young earth versus an old earth, evolution versus creation. Absolutely. I want to do that here at Telos. As a family, we need to be equipped. And me just standing up here on Sunday for 45 minutes, okay, an hour. Okay, I, can, I can't give it to you all. And we're going to, man, I, my heart is to equip you. I want so badly just to equip you so that we can stand firm, arm to arm as a family, locked in our faith and standing true. But we're going to have classes to where you can answer, or you can have questions answered, you can ask questions, and we can really sit down and help you work through this, okay? Aaron Bowman doesn't know it yet, but I'm going to ask him to teach it, okay? But we're going to equip you the best we can. I'm going to try to get something started to where the parents can sit down and get informed, especially when your kids start coming home from school. I've got a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old. I know what's coming when they open up their textbook and there's the monkey to a man, as fact. And we can't, even, we, we can't even teach just the evidence that I gave you last week of a young earth versus an old earth. So we're going to do what we can to equip you, I promise you. Okay? Okay, and then there's questions about the ice age. There was never an ice age on this planet, meaning the whole world was covered with ice. I've got questions about the woolly mammoth when they were flash frozen. Uh, how that was as far as fossils and everything else goes. Why did the woolly mammoth have all that hair and that fur if he didn't need it, if the world was a lush forest? So great questions. Let me just talk about that. Let me talk about fossilization and the flood and everything because it all ties in, okay? Before the flood, 1,500 years or so after creation, 
Approximately, I'll say, I think it was 1,656 years after the creation, God brought a flood. He completely annihilated the earth except for eight people. Prior to the flood, the temperature of the earth was consistent from pole to pole. I know that because the Bible tells me that the whole world was like the garden of the Lord. And when you read the description of the garden, there were four rivers, there were trees, the tree of life, there's hundreds and hundreds of trees, green foliage all over. It says in Genesis 1, when God created the firmament, and the idea that you can get is like our ozone layer. It says he pulled a sheet of water off of this ball that was water called the earth. He pulled a sheet of water and created the firmament. Now, the word in the Hebrew for firmament is rakia. It means to compress and to pound down. We've talked about this before. It's the same word used when they pounded out the gold into thin sheets and lined the inside of the temple in the Ark of the Covenant. When you take hydrogen, which is in the atmosphere, and you compress it, it will crystallize. It'll be a solid crystalline canopy, kind of like you have a glass bubble around the earth. And that would keep the temperature of the earth consistent from pole to pole. That's why you find the woolly mammoths with dandelions mid-swallow, flash frozen, so well preserved you can eat the meat. Scientists can't explain this. How did it happen? The way the structure of the earth is, is you've got a molten lava core that's hardened, then you've got a water jacket, then you've got a granite crust around that water jacket, and then you've got dirt, okay? They believe that God heated up when he flooded the earth. It says that the, the depths of the earth burst forth and then the heavens rained down for 40 days and 40 nights. Prior to the flood, there was no rain. It says in the Bible that a mist came up from the ground and watered the plants. We believe that God heated up the core. Now again, the Bible doesn't say this, so we're speculating. But he heated up the core of the earth, which caused that water jacket underneath the granite crust to expand, to heat up and expand. You see what happens to water when it boils. Which now caused the uniform granite crust to rip and tear, and the water and steam shot up 70 miles, ripped the water canopy, brought it down on the earth. When you collapse the water canopy, that crystalline canopy, now the poles freeze instantly, and the water that's coming out of the earth will encapsulate these animals, fossilize them, especially if you've got mud coming from floods, encapsulate these creatures, and you get fossils. That's the only explanation you got on these woolly mammoths. And so you really never had a planet that was completely covered in ice or an ice age, but you have now frozen poles because now that water canopy, again, like if you get in your car on a cold day and the sun's shining, it's much, much hotter in your car than outside because the sun rays go in, bounce around. They won't come back out that glass. Same thing with your earth. Okay? Only explanation we have is what's in the Bible. The depths of the earth burst forth, the heavens collapsed. With that, the poles froze probably instantly. And you've got what you're finding today, these woolly mammoths that are frozen. Okay? So far, so good? Let's talk about the dinosaurs. Because we've got a lot of questions about dinosaurs. How long did they coexist? How long did they live? Did they coexist with man? Were they on the ark? Why after the ark did they not stay alive? Uh, could not the planet sustain their life because they were so large? 
and so on and so forth. So let's talk about that, okay? Take your Bibles and go to Job because we have a description of dinosaurs. Take your Bible, open it right in the middle. You should hit Psalms. If you hit Psalms, hang a left, okay? And you'll go to Job. Go to Job chapter 38. One of my favorite sections in Job. Job, if you've ever read the book, it's supposedly the oldest book you have in your Bible, that Job existed during the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Job was undergoing a massive trial. He was being tested because Satan was talking with God, and God said, take a look at my servant Job. He's a great man of God. Yeah, but you've got a silver spoon in his mouth. Take all he has, and he'll curse you. And God said, test him. And you saw what happened to Job. His friends came. They weren't much help. They were saying, surely you're a sinner. God brings down his wrath on sinners. Towards the end, God gets tired of all these guys speaking that are supposed to be wise. And he says, listen, you guys have misrepresented me. I am a God of mercy. I'm a God of compassion. I'm a God of love, slow to anger. You're misrepresenting me to Job. I'm going to speak now. And in chapter 38, God just gets fed up with the belly aching and the misrepresentation and people pontificating on who he is and how he acts. And he says, let me tell you how I am. Let me tell you how I act. He says, Job, stand up. Brace yourself like a man. I'm going to ask you a question. You're going to answer me. Who are you that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Who are you to tell me how I created things? Who are you to me? Who are you to tell me how to run things? And so he asks Job 77 questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I created everything? Where were you when I set out its dimensions, verse 5 in chapter 38? Now what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstones while the angels sang? Verse 12, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out? Verse 14, the earth takes shape like the clay under the seal. Literally in the Hebrew, it rotates on an axis. Again, this is written way before 1492 where Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Where people thought the earth was flat. The Bible says it rotates on an axis. Okay, we just read in Isaiah 40 that God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. He says, verse 16, have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadows of death? Verse 19, what about the abode of light? Where does darkness come from? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths of their dwelling? What about lightning? What about hail? What about rain? I mean, this is humiliating for Job. Where were you? I mean, that's the question to the evolutionists. Where were you when he created it? All we have is an eyewitness account of God who created everything. Where were you? And he just goes down the list. And finally, in chapter 40, he gets to the dinosaurs. Again, he describes animals to the T. He describes ostriches. He describes lions. He describes horses just as they're created And then in chapter 40, verse 15, God goes into what are called dinosaurs. Now, you won't see the word dinosaur in your Bible. Here's why. The English anatomist, paleontologist, Sir Richard Owens in 1841 
came up with the word dinosaur. It's a combination of two Latin words. Dinos, D-E-I-N-O-S, which means terrible or terrifying. And saurus, S-A-U-R-A-S, which means lizard or reptile. So it's a large, terrifying reptile. That's where the word dinosaur comes from. Didn't come about till 1841. What you see God here do, and I believe that Adam named the dinosaurs. He named this one Behemoth. He named this other one Leviathan. How do I know that? My Bible tells me. God brought all the animals before Adam, and he named them. When were the dinosaurs created? Take a look. Verse 15, look at the behemoth, which I made along with you. So where does God say, or when does God say he made the dinosaurs? Because he's going to describe this behemoth. Maybe a sidemosaurus or a brontosaurus. I made him alongside you. If you go to the Genesis account, chapter 1, on the sixth day, God brought forth the land animals and man. So here it is. The dinosaurs were created on the sixth day with man. Yeah, but why did they eat them? Well, prior to the flood, man did not eat meat and meat did not eat man. Okay, after the flood, God says, now you will eat meat and I will put the fear of man in the animals. And after the flood, animals now eat men, and men eat animals. After the flood, the dinosaurs couldn't exist because when that water canopy collapsed, the oxygen level couldn't sustain that large of life, and you didn't have the foliage you did prior to the flood. And they'd eat people. So they became extinct. So I made him alongside you. Now watch this. What strength he has in his loins, what power the muscles of his belly, his tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are close-knit. Now, here's what's amazing to me. I'll read the commentaries on this, and they'll say that this is describing an elephant. That the word tail could possibly mean his trunk. No, the word tail in the Hebrew is the back end of the animal. God knows the difference from the front end and the back end. Okay? And why would all of a sudden that mean something different when he's describing this animal, when he's described all the other ones, and we've got no problem with it, ostrich, lion, horse, bears. And so if it says his tail sways like a cedar, again, it's either a seismosaurus or it's a brontosaurus, but it's massive. Now watch this. Verse 19, he ranks first amongst the creations of God. Let me give you the word in Hebrew for first. It's reshith, R-E-S-H-I-T-H. It means choice, beginning, foremost, largest, the finest and the chief of all animals. So this isn't an elephant because we know, where's that one slide of those bones? We know how big dinosaurs were because we've got the fossils, right? Is it up there? There you go. He ranks first amongst the works of God. Yet his maker can approach him with a sword. The hills bring him his produce. When the rivers rage, it says he's not afraid. Verse 24, can anyone capture him by the water hole? The answer is no. These are all rhetorical questions. Or trap his nose or pierce him. Trap him and pierce his nose. 41, he's going to talk about another one, the Leviathan. Some kind of large sea creature. In Psalm 104, it says the ships go to and fro where the Leviathan frolics next to it. So here's some big, large sea creature. I have no idea. But he says, can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? 
Have you guys been, uh, have you seen that River Monsters? That's a good show. That guy, man, he goes and he gets these massive fish. He can pull in anything. Here, he ain't pulling in this thing. You can't pull him in with a hook, it says. Or pierce his jaw with a hook. Will he keep begging you for mercy? Will he speak to you with gentle words? Will he make an agreement with you for you to take him as a slave for life? Can you make a pet of him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? You can't do it. He's not a pet. He's too huge. Verse 7, can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on him, look what it says. You will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me, God says. So he says, look at how massive this thing is, but yet I created it and I'm over it all. So who are you, Job, to tell me how to run my planet and how to run life? Then he goes on. Look at this next creature. He talks about this one. It says, uh, verse 14, you open his mouth, he has rings of teeth. He has rows of shield tightly together, possibly a stegosaurus. Verse 18, the snorting of his breath, throws out flashes of light, his eyes like the rays of dawn, firebrands stream out of his mouth, sparks of fire shoot out, smoke pours from his nostrils as from a boiling pot over a a fire of reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from his mouth. And he goes on and says he's so strong when he goes through the water, it white caps. Verse 33, nothing on earth is his equal, a creature without fear. He looks down on all that is haughty. He is king over all that is proud. Okay? Now, when you get to this point where it says this dinosaur breathed fire, you're going, okay, surely this is a mythical animal. There's no such thing as something breathing fire. Well, if my Bible says this thing breathed fire, it breathed fire. Remember last week I showed you the picture of the bombardier beetle? We do have a creature on this planet to date that shoots fire out of his body as a protective mechanism, okay? The paleontologists are finding skulls of dinosaurs with chambers that they don't know what they were for. Well, the Bible says it shot fire out of its nostrils, okay? Watch this. This is a film clip from uh, Creatures That Defy Evolution on this bombardier beetle. Go ahead, Ben. In the fall of 1971, I went to Baylor in Dallas and gave my first lecture. It was on the evolution of the tooth. And I talked about how these fish scales gradually migrated into the mouth and became teeth. And a couple of my students came to me after class that day and said, Dr. Martin, have you ever investigated the claims of creation science? Well, that was 1971. I'd never even heard of it. At that point, I'd been a Christian for about five years. And uh, so I'm thinking to myself, where are these guys coming from? Uh, I've never heard of this. And uh, so I said, sure, I'll look into this with you. And I'm thinking, kind of as a cocky young professor, I'll blow these guys away. Well, they asked me to start studying the assumptions that the evolutionists make. And in all my years, eight years of scientific education, I had never had a single professor tell me about an assumption. And uh, so we started looking at the assumptions, and I began to realize they're making some claims here that really the assumptions aren't valid when they tell us rocks are very old and all these kinds of things. And, uh, and then they asked me to start studying some animals and see if I thought that animal could evolve. 
Well, the first thing that we really studied together was this little bug called a bombardier beetle. And this little insect, it's about a half inch long, and it mixes chemicals that explode. So I began to think, okay, now how would that evolve? Let's say if evolution is true, and you're evolving along here, and you don't have a defense mechanism, because that is the defense mechanism of the bug. So if evolution is true, it had to somehow evolve that. So let's say it's coming along here. Well, the first time it evolves the, the explosion, what does it do to the bug? Boom, you just splattered your bug, okay? So splattered bug pieces don't evolve. So I thought, well, how, how, how could this have happened? Well, it doesn't blow itself up. It has another little factory inside itself that manufactures chemicals, a chemical, acts as a catalyst, so that when you squirt that chemical in with these other chemicals that are like in neutral, you get your explosion. Well, the first time it manufactured that little chemical, it, it, here it goes again, blew itself up again. But it doesn't. Why? Well, because it has like an asbestos-lined firing chamber. And even then it would blow itself up if it didn't have somewhere for the explosion to go. So it has uh, like twin tail tubes. And it can aim these tail tubes all the way up, out the side, out the front. Let's say a spider is coming up toward its side and it doesn't have time to turn around and shoot. Uh, it can just take its little gun turret, aim it out there and shoot. The, the explosion on this little bug, all you hear, if, if you're listening as a human, you hear this pop. But scientists have now put that explosion in slow motion. And it's like, it's like about a thousand sequential little explosions, but they're so fast, all we hear is one pop. And so you think, well, now, why would that be? Well, that was a curious thing for the scientists that study this little bug. A lot of them at Cornell University, some other places. And what they discovered was that if it was just one big pop, the, the little bug, if he's shooting like a spider, let's say over here, uh, and he goes, Roomp, bang, and shoots it, he's going to pop himself right out of there. It's like <laughs> lighting a burner on a jet engine. So he's out of there. But as long as it is a sequential explosion with his little legs, he can hang on. How would evolution explain a sequential explosion? This little bug messes with all the theories of evolution. There is no way a slow, gradual process is going to produce this bug. There's no way uh, even the newest theories of evolution, like punctuated equilibrium, which means evolution happens very fast. Well, there's no way that will explain this little bug. I began to realize, how could this particular little animal, for instance, evolve? Uh, it needed all of its parts, it needed everything there all at once, or you just don't have the animal. And my stomach started to churn, if, if I really want to be honest. And my wife would tell you, my stomach churned for five years. It took a five-year struggle for me to begin to flip the way I think, from thinking in an evolutionary way to thinking in more this animal or little creature, little bug, whatever, was created uh, fully formed, just like it is, because that went against everything I'd ever learned. Did you know the world's strongest animal is actually the beetle? In fact, in... What do you think? Isn't that amazing? And so, I can run. There, there's just so much out there. We're out of time. But what I wanted to show you this morning and just answering these questions, and he's talking about punctuated equilibrium. There's a question about irreducible complexity, about how a creature can actually go from disordered order, from evolving upward. And you just don't see that. You don't see something coming from nothing. You don't see light bouncing off of a creature that doesn't have an eyeball, and then all of a sudden it evolves an eyeball. It just goes against everything. Those, those laws don't work with evolution, and it's just so disproven now, but yet it's still being taught as fact. 
And so we need to get a little angry. We need to get a little upset and passionate about the assault and the attack that's being committed on our word and on the, on the Bible, our very faith. We're being mocked and made fun of when, in fact, the evidence is all on our side. But let's just take it a step further. You know, after God did that with Job, and I love what God did, God didn't sit with Job and say, let me give you your resume. You deserve all the stuff I'm putting you through, but he doesn't do it. Instead, he says, look at creation, Job. Look at everything I created. It was all for you. It was all for you and for us to look at the majesty and the glory, as Paul says, at the length, the width, the height, the depth of the love that God has for us. That if God cares enough about the ostrich laying its eggs and the sparrow and the lions and the dinosaurs and he created all this for us to just be in awe of God and his majesty and God says all that for you. I love you that much. And it's basically saying to Job, Job, if I've created all that and I run all this stuff and I did it before any humans were even on the earth and I did it just out of love for them, do I not love you? Am I not there for you no matter what trial you're going through? Yes. And you know what Job says? Job says, I cover my mouth. Surely I spoke in ignorance. I am the lowest of low. I'm beneath dirt. He says, I've heard you, but now I've seen you. We see God in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display wisdom. What's the speech? God screams in creation, I love you. I care for you that much. My depth, my length, my height, the width of my love is beyond man's being able to see it. He says, just look at creation. Look how much I love you. I mean, what a great truth. I'll leave you with this. This is what Darwin said toward the end of his life. This comes from C.W. Hale Amos. The book is called The Bible Friend, talking about Lady Hope, who was caring for Darwin. Lady Hope visited him one afternoon in his hospital bed. He was bedridden for some months before he died. And sitting up in his bed, he held an open Bible. This is Charles Darwin. What are you reading, asked Lady Hope. The royal book, I call it. Isn't it grand, Darwin answered. Lady Hope mentioned about creation in the early chapters of Genesis. Darwin seemed greatly distressed, and a look of agony came over his face as he said, I was a young man with unformed ideas. I threw out queries and suggestions and theorems, wondering all the time over everything, and to my astonishment, the ideas took like wildfire. People made a religion out of them. And then he added, I have a summer house in the garden. I want you to speak to the people there tomorrow afternoon. What shall I speak about, Lady Hope asked. Christ Jesus, he replied in a clear, emphatic voice, adding in a lower tone, and his salvation. Is not that the best theme? And then I want you to sing some hymns with them. And then he added in farewell, if you take the meeting at three o'clock, this window will be open and you will know that I am singing with you. I'm joining in on the singing. Isn't that good? Charles Darwin. Let me pray this out. Father in heaven, 
Lord, we just give you thanks for this book. Oh, the more I study it, the more you teach me, the more I realize I don't know. And Father, you have not left us here. You have said without a vision, without a revelation from you, the people perish. Happy are those that hold to your word. Happy are those that keep your law. And we are so grateful that you've given us this. This is your love letter supreme, the genesis of where we've been, how exactly you put it all together, and where we're going, how it is all going to end. So we don't have to have the fear of uncertainty, worry, or doubt. And we don't have to fear you as being a tyrannical deity, a God that wants to crush us, but a loving God. You show it to us every day we wake up, we look at the stars in the sky, we look at the animals, we look at creation itself that expresses the deep, deep love you have for us. Father, let it go from our head to our hearts. Let us as a family just love each other, just give words of encouragement and build one another up. Not be so critical, but just encouraging. Father, the things that we're doing right, there's a lot of things we're not doing right, but we're trying. Just love on us, help us. Help us in Jesus' name. It's for his sake we're here and we pray. Amen. Amen.